Hey there, listeners. This is your producer, Adrian Wood, and I'm bringing you a live recording from the panel portion of our community listening party from August 5th, 2023 at the Attucks Theater in Norfolk, Virginia. This panel features the voices of Cassandra Newby-Alexander, Monet Johnson, and Kim Sutterth, all of whom you may remember from Waiting Between Two Titans. This was a really amazing event. We had dozens of people come through the door and show their faces. We got to feed everybody. There was amazing live music by Billy Mercury, whose band is local to Norfolk from Park Place. And I felt really fulfilled by this event. It really meant a lot to me to be able to offer this podcast back into the community and to give thanks to all the folks who contributed to it with their stories. So what you'll hear next is the live audio from the panel. And I hope that you enjoy it and get to learn something more in depth about Norfolk, its history, its present and its future. As always, this is a product of the Repair Lab, part of the Karsh Institute for Democracy at the University of Virginia. Thanks to the folks at the Attics Theater and to our extraordinary panelists, as well as all the folks who were in attendance. If you couldn't make it, we hope to see you next time. Welcome to the Attics Theater. Who has been to the Attics Theater before? Cool, some returning folk and some new folk. Well, it's a pleasure and honor. This is my first time at the Attics Theater and um, I'm amazed that Billy and his band are in the ranks with Duke Ellington, Bessie Smith, um, Nat King Cole, some legends. Um, And if you take a minute Sometime today, when you're on the way to the restroom, there's like this really cool display of Attic's theater history right there on your left as you go down the hallway, and pictures of some of those people, some of the original floorboards. It's just, um, it's a magical and truly historic place built in 1919, over 100 years old, and here we are today. Um, So thank you all for joining me. And I'll go ahead and introduce our panelists now, and then we'll get started with the hour-long panel. There will be time for audience Q&A afterwards. So starting with Professor Cassandra Newby-Alexander. Professor Newby Alexander is an endowed professor of Virginia Black History and Culture at Norfolk State University and director of the Joseph Jenkins Roberts Center for the Study of the African Diaspora and former dean of the College of Liberal Arts at Norfolk State University. All right, thank you for joining us. Seated in the middle, we have Monet Johnson, lead organizer for New Virginia Majority, with a focus on housing and environmental issues. And finally, Kim Sutterth, the Repair Lab's first practitioner in residence, who now serves as our Environmental Justice Fellow. And that's not all. 
She was the first ever black female vice chair of the planning commission in the city of Norfolk and leads the Norfolk NAACP's Environmental and Climate Justice Committee. I know, how does she find the time? Great, so welcome. Um, the way that this panel is gonna go is that I'm going to play a clip from one of our esteemed panelists, and then I'll pass it to them to respond to the clip um, with a question. Y'all can all chime in. It's not exclusive, but I will pass it to somebody, and um, we'll do that twice each, and then we'll open it up for questions. Cool. So I'll start with Monet. So this clip um, is from episode three of the podcast, and it's about a historic lawsuit that Monet was part of. Um, in the past several years, there has been a really interesting rearranging of housing and space in the St. Paul's area that we are now in um, by the Norfolk Redevelopment and Housing Authority, the NRHA, and the city of Norfolk. So Monet was part of this historic lawsuit um, around this redevelopment. And I'll um, play the clip now and then we'll say more. That was our community group. And I think it's considered like the largest discrimination lawsuit that the city of Norfolk has faced. All of the residents of St. Paul's are black people. It's like upwards of 95% African-American over there. The lawsuit was about like the right to return the right to stay in Norfolk as a black resident and not be threatened because the land you're on is now considered valuable. This lawsuit filed and decided in 2021 alleged that the NRHA was perpetuating segregation through their historic urban renewal rearrangements of Norfolk. The city through the NRHA was forced to pay the residents of St. Paul's a cumulative total of $200,000 and set aside an additional 41 units at the market rate apartment complex across the street from St. Paul's. It's called Market Heights. The other thing that the lawsuit did is stop the other two communities in St. Paul's quadrant from being redeveloped, at least for now. Um, Monet, I just wanted to ask you if you could just help us understand more about the relationship between the racial segregation that was the subject of the, of the lawsuit, and in particular, some of the environmental problems in St. Paul's Quadrant. Yeah, so the organization I work for, New Virginia Majority, was originally involved because of the environmental issue in St. Paul. So in Tidewater Gardens, it floods really bad. People were losing car after car after car, and there was nothing to be done about that. Um, but when organizers, even before me, went out and had conversations about this, people were like, yeah, I lost my car, but also, like, I might lose this house that I'm living in, right? So the city got a CNI grant for upwards of $40 million that allowed them to actually tangibly tear down Tidewater Gardens, because we've been hearing it forever. We just never had the money to do it. And so part of this was Norfolk's Vision 2100. It's a flood resiliency plan by the city for the city of Norfolk. And it actually had a color-coded map in terms of how valuable land was and how much it floods. And so surprisingly enough, this land that is currently inhabited at the time by low-income black people is very valuable and it also floods really bad. So what do we do to fix it? Move everybody. 
move everybody so that we can do whatever it is that we want to do with the land, whatever we find important with the land, and forget about the families that live there. And through that process, that is a high concentration of black families that live in this area. Um, and the plan was sort of to take their home, give them a voucher, right? Take where you live, give you a piece of paper, and tell you best of luck finding a new place to live. And we knew that it would cause massive amounts of black families, parents, children, um, to end up outside of the city of Norfolk. We just just because we didn't have a substantial amount of voucher housing. Um, so we knew it would end up decreasing uh, the black population of Norfolk in addition to breaking up a largely black voter block. Yeah, and so what I'm hearing is that it was sort of a targeted approach to breaking up an area. And um, can you tell us more about what's being built there? Uh, what the city would call mixed-use, mixed-income housing, which means uh, please don't come back if you used to live here. <laughs> uh, that consists of far less homes than that were there originally. Tidewater Gardens consisted of 618 homes. They're now building upwards of 200, some of which they're calling mini-mansions. And the other half of the neighborhood, they're turning into, uh, what is it, the Blue Greenway. Uh, essentially saying that they're going to give Tidewater Gardens back to Mother Nature because the reason it fled so bad is because it was built on top of water. Right, so uh, the solution is to build less housing, leave that land so that it can flood the way that it originally did, and sort of uh, leave the rest to figure out to the residents and possibly hope they get lost in these transitions and this moving with these vouchers and are unable to come back because they're not building enough for any, everyone to come back in the first place. Um, and just one more follow-up question. Can you just tell us more about what are the vouchers and how do they work? Oh, yeah. Um, a housing choice voucher is a fancy way of saying Section 8. Um, it is a voucher that provides income to your landlord. Well, not provides income, but provides uh, money to your landlord on behalf of the local government, federal government, um, and pays your rent for a portion of it. Um, and so the other issue with that is that landlords don't want to take the vouchers, right, because the history of racism and classism and all other things uh, make them think that if you need help paying your rent, you're somehow subhuman, right, and that you're going to do something dangerous to their housing when people just want a place to live. So the issue with getting these vouchers is that they're supposed to be a way to find a new home, right, but people aren't taking them. And there's not even, even of the homes that take vouchers, there's people with vouchers in those homes, so it's very hard to find somewhere to go, which is why they're not a solution to housing because they're not a home. There's just a piece of paper that says, if you find one, we'll pay for some of it. Yeah, that, that too. Thank you, Kim. Uh, the wait list is insane. One time they opened it in 2020-ish for like a day, 11,000 families signed up. And currently there are, last time I checked, 4,140 families with a voucher in the city of Norfolk. The wait list is upwards of 13,000 people. So we don't have 13,000 homes currently because we're not building any and we're not making uh, the homes that exist more accessible to people with vouchers. Thank you for that. Um, are there any follow-up comments from Kim or Professor Nubi Alexander? You know, this situation reminds me of historically what's gone on in Norfolk. Um, there's a perception that our city leaders have about the city, and that perception is not historically accurate. Norfolk has always been a diverse city. Uh, I remember looking at 
uh, tourism promotional books that were done in the early part of the um, 20th century, some of them the latter part of the 19th century, and they showed an entirely white city. That was the perception they were projecting. Um, and I believe for those who were part of the power structure, that is the perception that they had because of the microclimates that they lived in. And what I mean by that is that it was in the 1940s that we would start seeing the NRHA redevelop Norfolk to create a separate, well, to create two cities, one black and one white. And the one street that connected both of those sides was essentially a one-lane street, and that was Princess Anne Road. And, and even today, it still takes you longer to get, I'm at Norfolk State, it takes me longer to get from Norfolk State to Old Dominion than it should take because of the routes that were intentionally created to make it difficult to go from one side of the city to the next. And so this, this plan that I have been hearing about, you know, since the early 1980s, that essentially they wanted to get black people out of downtown Norfolk to bring white people back into the city. And all of that, of course, the result of busing and white flight. And, and so, as you said, when they very correctly, they finally got the money to do it because a lot of those grants are, are on the backs of the presence of black people, but there's no, nothing in the law that says you have to use it to help the black community. That you can redesign an area, and as long as you allow us maybe a certain percentage of that money to help a few black people, that's fine. And so there has been a movement to really mandate that cities stop using those, that kind of funding to basically erase black people from certain locations. And so for Norfolk, they have continued to, to use that same playbook. I remember when they did that in East Ghent. And I remember all the promises that they made for years in East Ghent, and then suddenly, overnight, oh no, no, well, you know, this is after they made sure that that whole area was vacant for at least five years. So the people who had lived there, there was no way they could return. In addition, they built housing that was prohibitive for them to return because it was for upper middle class people. So this old playbook they pull back out, and that's the St. Paul's Corridor. The difference is the time. There's a big difference between what happened in the 1970s and, and access to information and the way that people are sick and tired of being sick and tired of racism. The difference between that and, of course, today. And the, you can't keep using the same playbook and actually expect the same results with different types of people in a different era. And especially with all of the research that scholars are doing today, looking at not only seawater rise, but looking at the policies that have been implemented specifically to help 
upper middle class and upper class whites and using those same policies to hurt especially communities of color. And, and they've been using these institutions like the NRHA and other institutions to continue to basically hurt black people. Even before that organization was created in 1945, in the 1930s, it was a similar type of organization uh, that was create, the money was used through the New Deal to create this organization that black people call the Negro Removal Association because their job seemed to have been to go into black communities that had been long neglected by municipalities and under the aegis of we're gonna clean it up, they wiped out black businesses, they wiped out black communities, and they essentially laid waste to those areas so that they could bring something else in. You would also see, for example, where Scope and um, Chrysler Hall is, there was a historic black church there that, go, that went back to the 1830s. It was called Bank Street Baptist Church. And because of a lack of resources that the city put in that area, many of the people in the church voted to move their church to another location with the assistance of the city. Of course, what they surrendered was far more valuable than what they received. And they lost this important historical edifice. As a result, the white church that was nearby was provided much more support. And of course, they're still in their location. And so we, we would see the city continue to use this power, um, a power, by the way, that black people didn't have access to until the Voting Rights Act and until activists put their lives on the line to make sure that people could vote. You know, Norfolk had this favorite ballot that they used if you wanted to register to vote, where they would show you all the information you had to complete, and then they'd give you a blank sheet of paper and say, fill it out. And, and of course, that would require that you remembered everything. So black people were deprived of the ability to vote for many, many decades while all of these things were being put in place. And when I say all these things, this kind of infrastructure was put into place. And now we're left today with that same infrastructure that has not changed. And so when it comes to, in fact, uh, what Rothstein mentioned in his book, uh, The Color of Law, that Norfolk was one of the places where the city treasurer was still assessing the values of black homes higher than what they could sell it for. So we still have a lot of this institutionalized racism that continues to exist, and these kinds of policies and behaviors still are part of the system. And I wish people would stop talking about, you know, you have a black person in that position. So what are you talking about? How can that black person be racist? Easily. If the system is racist, and the person is working within the system, and so many people want to keep their jobs, and they won't buck the system, then all you do is you put a front person up there and you continue to do the same thing. And I've talked too long. I'm going to shut up. Oh, thank you.
No, thank you so much, Dr. Alexander. And I think what's so important about what you're saying is that these stories are not new. Like, this has been done so many times. I was born in Massachusetts. I used to spend my summers here. My grandma there, who has the gift bag, uh, used to tell me when she'd bring me to the mall or other places, she'd say, you see the mall? And I'd look at the mall and be like, yeah. And she'd be like, and you see those brick houses over there? They don't want those people over there because they built this mall. And one day, they're going to want to tear all of this down. And so here I am. I was a, literally in my single digits thinking she was insane. And now it's my job to worry about the people, right, that, the, that they're actively trying to put out and have put out. 618 families lost their homes. In addition to the fact that what you were mentioning about how long it takes to get from NSU to ODU is now going to cease to exist because the city has, what, six-ish million dollars? I don't know if you know, Cam, to undo what they're calling the spaghetti bowl oh, yeah. of traffic over there. So like now for the new families, that won't be an issue, getting access to other places or being able to get there. And so it's really important that when we say that like, oh, these things happen by happenstance, or perhaps the powers that be just don't know that they exist, they absolutely do. Because when it's time for other people to exist in these places, they know which roadblocks to move. And that doesn't happen on accident. That's right. Yeah. I don't think I could add anything to what these remarkable women have just said. Um, I do want to clarify why I named the project uh, Waiting Between Two Titans. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> um, the reason I, I, I had a wonder. I was wondering, um, thinking about the work I did in, in Tidewater Gardens um, a couple of years before Monet. Um, I was working with some mothers, Michelle Cook, uh, oh gosh, with Jackie Smalls and um, a few other women that lived in Tidewater Gardens. And the issue in Tidewater Gardens at that time for us was that there was a, basically a pond between where the homes are were, where the homes were, and where the elementary school is. And um, the school was uh, K through third grade, so these are little kids. And on those, uh, those rainy days, and we're seeing more of them here lately, right? This summer has probably been the wettest that I can recall. Um, but that bowl would fill up like New Orleans. And so the children would had to make a choice. Well, the parents had to make a choice for the children. Do I let my child walk to school through thigh deep water or do I send them, uh, keep them home? More often than not, they kept them home. Tidewater Park Elementary, very low SOL scores, so every moment of instruction that they lose makes them go further behind. So we worked with the city, the principal, um, the bus driver, the um, transportation director, and we came up with a plan to have a school bus pick up the children to take them around uh, Tidewater Drive and, and um, Ballantyne, not Ballantyne, I'm sorry, Brambleton, in order to get to school. And that was a win, and we were very excited. Um, and then it might have been about six months later, uh, Michelle Cook told me that she got a letter in the mail saying that she's going to have to find somewhere else to live. Um, I have dedicated my environmental justice work in her name. We lost her during COVID. Um, but she, she was poor, she was black, she was alone, and she was fighting for herself and her community. That's when I met her and that's how she died. Um, the reason I, again, waiting between two titans, I was looking at these circumstances, like what's happening in Tidewater Gardens, and this is not an isolated event within our city. This isn't even an isolated event in, in our region. This is nationwide. 
and I was thinking about gentrification in general, right? Um, anyone familiar with gentrification? It's everything that we're talking about, where um, homes are devalued, there's disinvestment in communities, and once the home values are low enough, folks can come in, buy cheap, fix it up, sell high, and it pushes out the people that currently live in the community. And I was thinking about that is, again, not new to Norfolk, it's not new at all. Historically, um, this is happening all over the country. Now let's add climate change to it. Now let's add our recurrent flooding. Now what happens? So we have unchecked gentrification and we have flood-driven uh, climate change. The way it shows up here would be um, in our flooding. So these are the two titans and in the middle is us. So my wonder was what exactly, well I needed to, because it was a wonder, it was something on my heart that I know is happening, but we got to prove it, right? We want data-driven policies. Um, so we, I worked with the repair lab and we looked at elevations and we looked at all the things to say like, here are the spots where um, our black folks live and what are the elevations and where elevation comes in and I feel like I am talking too long. Am I doing all right, y'all? Okay. <laughs> um, but the elevation, the higher you are, right? Higher ground, you're less likely to flood. Lower ground, you're more likely to flood. Um, if black folks are gonna be pushed out of the higher elevations, where do they go? Does anybody care? Well, we'll see about that. So part of the work at UVA was to uh, come up with some policies that might help. Um, and I won't go into that because I feel like we're gonna be together for an hour, but I just wanted to explain that. Thank you. Thank you. Wow, so um, that really sort of um, shores up most of the podcast. I mean, I don't think you need to listen to it anymore. <laughs> Just kidding, go listen. But um, I will play another clip now. Um, and this one we sort of um, touched on a little bit with what Professor Newby Alexander was explaining about sort of the history of these patterns of pushing black people out of desirable areas that realtors and developers think they might be able to get more from. Um, so this next clip is from the podcast. It's from episode one. And it's Professor Newby Alexander talking about the history of specifically central and downtown Norfolk um, and the way that this area was an important hub for African-Americans pre-Civil War and Civil War era. Um, and... Um, I'm, uh, I'm gonna pass it to the audio now. Were there free black communities throughout Hampton Roads? The answer is yes. There were pockets of free blacks everywhere. In fact, there were some people who had never really been enslaved. And then of course they had children and their children's children's children continued to be free. In the earliest days of Norfolk, many of those free black families lived intermingled with other groups in the town. They lived with the flooding and its byproducts just like Norfolk residents do today. So Professor Newby Alexander, I wanted to play this clip because I wanted to prompt you to tell us more about where black folks in that era were able to find land, um, how that sort of set up patterns of residence that we still see, and specifically like what flooding conditions did to those areas in that time. 
how many of you have actually seen a map of, of downtown Norfolk uh, around the period of 1776, 1790, that period? A handful of you. All right, you know there's water, water every, everywhere and very few roads and very little high ground. There are pockets of high ground. And Norfolk um, made an effort to fill in a lot of that land by making an effort. You know, there are no natural rocks in Hampton Roads. We, all the rocks we have, we import. Uh, and if you didn't know that, I guess you know that now. <laughs> and so we use shells, especially oyster shells, to fill in. And whatever else we had, building materials, wood. And if you can imagine, the worst thing in the world to use to fill in anything is wood because it's going to decay. So we, start, we moved when we started getting washing machines and things. We would dump that there in the hole and fill it in. So this area has, um, has not thought through the, the historical issues that it has had for many generations. Um, and so we cover over creek beds instead of redirecting creek beds. So never go down Princess Anne Road when it's raining because that was a creek bed. And you put cemeteries near the lowest lying areas because the people are already gone. You don't put people in areas that make them very vulnerable to malaria and other things, which is where low-lying, what, lo, what happens in low-lying areas. And that's historically what has happened. And so many free blacks in Norfolk, and, and Norfolk was a, um, a merchant town, and it still is a merchant town, and we still have a merchant mentality. And, a, and what I call a merchant mentality is right now. What money can I make right now? What can I do right now? Not, you know, we, we, we make plans, but we don't implement long-term plans because it's a short-term way of thinking. What, what are we doing right now? And so the city um, just would fill in areas as people moved in. Ghent was essentially a separate island for a long time, and they had footbridges and so forth uh, to connect it. Granby Street had a finger of the Elizabeth River in there, and so where you have the Hilton, that used to be a finger of the Elizabeth River, which is why it floods all the time when it rains, because they're, you know, I'm gonna use that phrase they used in Frozen too, water has memory. And they didn't create that, but they did popularize that idea. Um, and so throughout Norfolk, especially the downtown area, which originally was only about two square miles, when it became a town from being a borough, it became a town, and then it became a city. Once it became a city, it was four square miles. So up and through the Civil War, Norfolk uh, the boundaries of Norfolk went up to where Brambleton Avenue is. That was Norfolk. And so everything out, you know, beyond that point was part of Norfolk County. 
And even you know before, when it was two square miles, that was Norfolk County. So if you wanted to live in nasty Norfolk, which most people didn't, unless you couldn't afford anything else, you developed, you built, you purchased homes or land outside of the, the city limits or outside of the town limits. If you had the money, you bought land and you lived there. It was healthier, it was a better environment because the city was all about the seaport. And a number of free blacks, um, the 1830s was the time when the virulence of nasty pro-slavery arguments started emerging. Before it was, well, we have to enslave black people, we need laborers, but after all, you know, they're savages, they're brutes, so, you know, we're, we have to do this. But after the 1830s, the argument became, well, they are inferior people, and maybe they're not really people. Maybe they're some subhuman species, and so you had then some of these white doctors coming up with crazy ideas like black people were really more like dogs, and you can't harm them, you can't hurt them, you can mismanage them, and they might get diseases such as drapetomia, the disease of running away. Um, and, and so, you know, people actually convince themselves to believe this nonsense. Of course, let me just say that the majority of free blacks in this city were half white. Mm -hmm. Come on the, the absolute majority were half white. And so that's sort of the myth we have to move away from that there was actually a celebration, excuse me, a separation, and the majority of the slave traders in the city had black wives. So, you know, you had this weird world different from the one you're brought up thinking about and believing that existed. So that area around, um, around St. Mary's Basilica was really the very early free black community. And what I mean by that is they built homes for themselves. And there was a very active and powerful group of people who would later emerge around the time of the Civil War to be the biggest advocates for black rights. And so you had Keeling, for example, who actually owned a hotel um, uh, right in the 1860s, after, right after the Civil War. And he was a big advocate for civil rights and put forward statements and, and petitions and so forth to demand civil rights in the city. His widow, after he died, his widow was the one who was probably one of the most powerful black people in Norfolk when the uh, Presbyterian Church wanted to start a school, a high school for black people. All the black people said, you need to talk to Mrs. Keeling. She's the one who gave the okay for Norfolk Mission College and she enrolled her son in that school. And so you had this group of people who began to emerge around the early 1800s. And of course, that's the area that the city would later take over and put public housing in that area. Initially, they put housing for, for black workers in the shipyards during the Second World War, but then they started taking over that land. And they were using all the techniques, you know, 
uh, making sure that the area was dilapidated, reducing the costs of the, or the value of the property there, and then simply taking it over. And that's why you see black people concentrated in those areas because that was historically the black community. And it was a very powerful, as much as they could be, powerful community that had some degree of wealth but the city used this municipal power to not only take away their land, but then to place low-income housing on that land and then to isolate the people and then kill, basically, Church Street businesses with all of the renovations over the years. Wow, thank you for that. That was really enlightening. Um, you know, history is a story. I mean, I feel like you just really told us the story of the place that we're in now and, and you know, how we got here. Thank you for that context. I, um, are, are, I'm gonna move to our next clip now, which is from Kim. And this is from episode five of the podcast. Um, Kim is a resident of Southside Norfolk. And in this clip, Kim is reflecting on kind of the geography of Norfolk and how the South Side, um, the protections there are different from the protections that the mainland of Norfolk is looking at when it comes to sea level rise. So here's more on that. As a community leader and environmental justice advocate, Kim is someone who is invested in developing something that centers people who are falling through the cracks of other solutions. In Norfolk, one of those groups is black renters. They are unlikely to benefit from solutions like the seawall. I'm grateful that these interventions these structural interventions, I'm grateful that there is a plan that's going to protect at least 80% of the city. I'm really, really concerned about those areas that are relatively unprotected. So um, it's been over a year since we had that conversation. Um, and a lot has emerged in the city in the past year around this dynamic between the South Side and Mainland and what will happen with the seawall. Um, and so, Kim, I wanted to ask if you could share some, share some reflections with us on what has changed and what has developed in the past year around that. Sure, um, and thank you for that. Oh, shoot. Um, I wanted to, what we're talking about is the Norfolk Coastal Storm Risk Management CRSM, and um, I guess it was mid last year, and uh, the Army Corps of Engineers pre presented to the City of Norfolk and the City Council, and they said that they uh, we had this great plan to build seawalls and levees and lots of of concrete gray, what they call gray infrastructure, um, and they'll also use green infrastructure to um, put natural coastlines to help protect the city from storm surges like hurricanes and uh, tropical storms. That would not help our recurrent everyday flooding, our, our normal um, 
tidal flooding, but at least if there is a Katrina-like event, we'll have that. <clears throat> so I was very excited to hear it, um, but my excitement waned when I realized that where I live on the south side of Norfolk, I'm in, I live in Berkeley, and uh, we were left out of the structural gray infrastructure, so no seawall, no levee, or anything like that. But there would be one right across the Elizabeth River downtown. Um, and so uh, at the time when it was presented, uh, the mayor, Kenny Alexander, was he expressed some concern. He's like, is the south side going to be left out? Um, and the reason we were left out is because the Army Corps of Engineers, when they first did their feasibility study in 2015, um, they said that the cost of building a wall was going to cost more than the value of the homes and the properties that it would protect. So um, I'm going to dip in, in Dr. Newby Alexander's bag a little bit in just a little historical context. So back in the late 20s, early 30s, there was this program called the Homeowners Loan Corporation, HOLC. And they were the organization that decided um, where it might be safe to, uh, for banks to uh, have mortgages, right? We'll apply loans. We can, uh, you can have loans in this area. If it's blue, then that was the best. Um, and then if it was red, it was dangerous. If it was in a red location, it was dangerous. So you can guess where, who lived in the places that were in that red and that danger, and they called it redlining. So lots of black people, immigrants, poor people, they were redlined in those communities. So no mortgages, no new mortgage loans, uh, no refinancing so that you can make repairs and things like that. Um, and so the value of those homes, as you can imagine, were lowered. And we're talking almost 100 years ago. Um, so here we are today, we're still playing catch up as far as our loan values are concerned. But in 2015, when the Army Corps of Engineers used their benefit cost analysis, they said, nope, not valuable enough. We're not gonna put any structural um, protections there. So um, I don't know if anyone, do you know anyone, have ever visited, what do you know about the South Side? Berkeley, Campostela, Campostela Heights? Yeah. Paradise. Paradise, yes. Um, so, we fight hard there, <laughs> and we do because we've been hurting for so long. So eventually, when the city did a presentation on the, uh, the project, the proposal for the project, we lost our collective minds, and, um, and, and you know we let them know that we were unhappy with it, that this is a clear example of, of environmental injustice, and here we are again, black people, poor people, I mean, we're left out one more time, and we weren't going to stand for it. So we ended up going to uh, city council, and we, we voiced our opposition. Um, I'll add that because of my position as vice chair of the planning commission, that it did get some attention. Um, and if I could, just a quick shout out. If you are interested in serving on a board or commission in the city of Norfolk, I highly suggest that you do it because had I not been in that position, I don't know if we had been heard. I'm not gonna say Kim did it, but positionality is a thing. Yeah. Thank you. 
So since then, um, you know, we went to city council. Uh, it went before city council twice, I think, before some folks, uh, before the city, well, what we asked of the city is for them to be our advocate. Um, I brought up that the feasibility study was in 2015. Um, 2015 was a feasibility study. It went, and that was the, uh, that was the Barack Obama administration. And then uh, the, during the Trump administration, it kind of languished. And then under Biden, um, here it is coming back. So it's three presidential administrations this project has gone through. Since then, um, the Biden-Harris administration came up with the Justice 40 initiative. And essentially, it's saying we must, we must center equity in the decisions that we make on a federal level with federal projects. That wasn't done because most of the project had been planned prior to the Biden-Harris administration. So we demanded that the Justice 40 initiative be applied to this project. We asked that the city advocate on our behalf. We sent letters to our congressional delegation, uh, Mark Warner, Tim Kaine, and Bobby Scott. Um, I wasn't in those rooms when discussions were had, but things started moving really, really quickly. Um, we got some really good coverage from the Washington Post. I say thank you to Jim Morrison for covering our story. Um, and at today, at this point, um, we have met with, uh, I will never remember his name, but one of the colonels with the Army Corps of Engineers, and we have his assurance as well as other folks and high places that control the purse strings that, um, that they're going to do everything they can in order to put structural uh, interventions for the South Side in there. Um, but again, it's, we have to stay vigilant. We have to continue to follow up and, and demand answers if they're not given freely. Um, so yeah, that's where we are now. That's where wow. we are today. Wow. Yeah. I mean, what, a, what a turnaround. From nothing to something, you know, that's, uh, that's alchemy, right? Yes, and people power. I mean, we think about it, like, the powers that be, they, they control the purse strings, they have all the money, um, but never discount your voice. And always, like, roll deep. Like, we showed up to city council, we had 10 people that spoke, it was at least 20, 25 people in the audience, and um, we, we were raising our voice and making ourselves heard, and, and that is powerful. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Oh, thank you. Um, we have um, a few minutes left, so we're probably not going to hear all of the clips that I wanted to hear today, but I will jump to one more. Um, this one is back to Monet. And um, this is a clip that didn't make it into the podcast in our editing process, but I did really like, and I wanted to take the opportunity to share with you today. Um, in this clip, um, Monet is referencing $2 million, which is a sum of money that um, was developed through the Norfolk Redevelopment and Housing Authority's for-profit venture investment firm called Hampton Roads Ventures. Um, if you're kind of going, what are you talking about? You're not alone. This was something that a lot of people didn't know about until um, about a year or two ago. And it emerged that 
this venture capital or venture investment firm had made about $2 million that was sitting in a bank account that maybe could have been used to support folks in public housing, support transition, support cost of living or um, con living conditions. Um, so here's more on that. $2 million, again, a lot of money nowhere near fixing anybody's problems, that the average unit probably needs like $5,000 with maintenance. With like 800 units left, that's, that's more than $2 million. And that's just on average, some of this is plumbing, some of it you would have to tear the floor up just to fix the units. If you don't have money to fix everything, why don't you take some of that money, maybe start a maintenance academy, train people in the neighborhood to go out and help others, it's not possible to continue doing nothing. It's not possible. And so what do we do even if the city thinks, okay, we're gonna tear this down in five years, it would be ridiculous to put money into it. You, you pay for your reputation eventually. Like whatever reputation you possess is at some point gonna cost you some money or earn you some. And I think that at the very least they can provide some sort of dignified housing before someone who's not our org sues them again. So, um, I wanted to pass it to you just to comment more on that if you would like to, or tell us more about what's going on in the two remaining St. Paul's neighborhoods now and what still needs to be done. Yeah, so as you mentioned, uh, Hampton Roads Ventures came out of uh, Norfolk Housing and Redevelopment Authority. And again, our, oh, well, he moved, but the amazing reporter who was sitting here uh, was sort of the person who, for the city, blew the lid off of that. A while before that, we had had a membership meeting, a quad meeting is what we call our membership group. And we were just sort of looking at them accepting all of these donations from Hampton Roads Ventures. And I'm like, well, who the hell is Hampton Road Ventures? And where are they getting all of this money from? So imagine my surprise when I pull the website up and it's the literal same pictures on the Board of Commissioners website. They were paying themselves to get things done. Um, and so by things, I mean nothing that helped anybody in particular, but just stuff. Um, that was $2 million, it wasn't enough to help, but the city also got $154 million and decided to give zero to public housing. So it becomes increasingly, increasingly more aware that if you don't say anything, nothing gets done. And when you say something, nothing gets done. So you have to keep saying something. Um, and so a lot of those conversations continued even up until the end of Tadwater Gardens, which is kind of insane to think that by the time I have children, they won't know what Tadwater Gardens is, or was for that matter, or that there were families there, that there was a school. Um, and so now we have two communities left. Right, And because of the lawsuit, they would have to look into the impact of their actions if they tore one down within five years, which is why I say, okay, you don't want to tear it down for five years, that's fine. But I think that it's been blatantly obvious by the city before they got sued that that's their next plan. So we're in the communities, right? We're in Calvert Square, we're in Young Terrace, and the problems don't stop. There was still a maintenance issue. Our organizers are going out talking about the maintenance issue, and the parents are saying, well, they're shooting at the bus stop, right? So then we stand at the bus stop every day after school and make sure that no kids get shot at the bus stop. And then we're like, okay, well, the school year's about to be over. Nobody will have to stand at the bus stop except for the fact that there's no grocery store. So people will have to stand at the bus stop, right? And so there's all of this work that is being put into just making sure that the community cannot be under-resourced 
the way that it was the first time to at least maintain a sense of dignity and contact with folks so that we can be prepared for the next time this happens. So that's kind of what the work looks like right now. Uh, next weekend, we're having a community event. We're giving out over 600 uniforms to kids, right? Because they tore down Tidewater Park Elementary. The third graders also have to cross the highway to Portsmouth to get to school. It's third through eighth now. Parents can't give their older kids uniforms to their younger kids because they've changed all the colors. And so that's a lot of the work that we do, just staying in contact, asking residents what's, what's the next step, and them telling us this is what it looks like and us doing it. Um, I feel like the city of Norfolk could really benefit from a land trust, but I can't say that that's something that we're doing currently. I think that it's important, most important, to realize that through this process, while many people who weren't directly impacted or involved didn't know it was happening, right? There are so many people who don't know that this lawsuit happened, but it was so big for so many people. Even if it was a complete loss, the city never even considered being sued on behalf of poor black people. And there are so many poor black people. And they know that because they caused that, right? And the fact that this is yet another instance of the city telling black people, figure it out yourself, right? Here's a piece of paper. You didn't ask to move, but you have to. Figure out where you're going to live without addressing the fact that they caused the problem. And they caused the problem before that. And they rigged the game so that people would end up here in the first place. And there's always going to be people here in the first place. So the work is never done. Sometimes it means you're now arguing with city officials who look like you but it's never done. So I don't know if that answers the question. <laughs> um, Chandler, Professor Nubi Alexander, did you want to respond to that or add yes, to I it? Yes, I did. Thank you. Um, you know, you remind me of something that is critically important, and that is that... Um, Unfortunately, about 20 years ago, this, the schools, through the standards of learning, stopped teaching real civics. Yep. Instead, they started talking ad nauseum about the Electoral College. And so they convinced young people that voting didn't matter. Voting matters. People died to vote people continue to die to vote. And unfortunately, these communities that are the most vulnerable have the lowest number of people who are registered to vote. And I've decided I'm going to start calling out all these churches for not pushing to get their congregants to vote and to encourage their neighbors to vote. Because it's time we stop simply fundraising for ourselves <laughs> and you know really do something to help communities because it you know without communities what are we actually having here you know what's what is really the point you know it's about your community and and by the way while there's been this perception that you can have a black and white community and you can give everything to the white community and ignore the black community. Maybe in the 1940s you could do that. But in 2023, it hurts everybody. In fact, Norfolk continues to lose big businesses because they still 
have a biracial setup where they give a lot to one community and almost nothing to the other. And without a massive transportation system, without making sure that people are very well educated and are participating in the voting process, because you know, I remember when at least five of the council people were from the same neighborhood. Mm -hmm. and, and that neighborhood got everything. And, but unfortunately, they set up a system where it continues to get everything. Um, but until you, you actually add your voices, not just get up there in a protest, because I'm going to tell you, they still, they meaning the power structure still believes that the protest from the south side is going to blow over. You know, they can, they can, they can withstand some of the protests and then, you know, provide all of the promises. Uh, but I have not seen those promises fulfilled. I've just heard promises. And I'm, I'm a historian. I let people know. I'm a historian and I'm a teacher. I've heard lies. Yeah. And I know a lie when I hear it. And so a promise is a lie unless you see action associated with it. And I haven't seen any action yet. I haven't seen, I haven't seen new plans drawn. I have not seen efforts to engage the community to really try to work out a solution. And until I see that and actually see it submitted, I'm, I'm not believing that they're going to do anything. But if you have a large electorate and you just start basically voting people out of office, if they, if they don't do what you want them to do and you start advocating and you start petitioning and you start writing letters. You know, people told the, the black people in Montgomery, Alabama in, in, in the 1950s, you have no chance to change the bus policy there. The thing is, they told women that. Mm -hmm. And you know, the last thing you need to do, I'm gonna get real here. <laughs> The last thing you need to do is tell a woman she can't do something. That's the last, and then you're gonna tell a black woman she can't do something. And they have education, they have knowledge, they have organizational structures in place. You have something on your hands. And I would say people need to go back you know, get these groups that are social butterfly type groups and get them energized to make, to make a difference, to make a real difference. Not just, you know, a one, two, three difference. You know, oh, I help this one child over here. No, you need to help the community because until you help the community, that one child is left on their own. You need the community support and engagement. And so, I, I would say that in the future, we need to keep, we need to start really pushing for people to vote and educating people about the power that they have in voting. Uh, I, I, I have harangued my students and students that aren't my students, but they become my students because I, every time they say something stupid, like, you know, well, I don't see the need to vote or I don't get involved in that mess. I had a student who said that, and you know I lost my mind at that point, because I asked, what mess are you talking about? Right. Is the mess involved 
are you talking about where you live, that kind of mess? Are you talking about what you have access to? Is that the mess you're talking about? Are you talking about whether or not they put 20 toxic sites like they did in the, have done in the south side and in, in a one mile radius you have 20 toxic sites? 20. You telling me that, that, that that's mess that you don't get involved in and yet you're breathing that air? The south side has a higher stroke rate than any other place in the region. The south side has a higher cancer and asthma rate than any place in the region, but you know what? Air is not just localized to one area. And that air has a way of flowing around. But to give you also one last idea about how bad things are when you're talking about institutionalized racism, in the St. Paul's corridor where Tywater Gardens was, there was a 20-year life expectancy difference between those people and just across the fence. A 20-year life expectation difference. And that's because of the resources that were not in that community that were provided to the community just across the street. I don't mean a mile away, just across the street. And so I, I would say if we're really interested, we all should think globally that, that what's happening in one community impacts me. I may be in another community, but it still directly impacts me. And until we start thinking like that, we're going to continue to see the same inequities and it's going to hurt us. You know, when we were trying to get the Amazon, not just as a distributor, but you know, their corporate headquarters here, we couldn't. We couldn't because we still think like merchants and we still have policies that isolate people and harm all of us at the same time. I thank you for listening to my haranguing. Yeah. One more time.